right, guys. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the First Strike Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Fortier, sitting in once again for KYT. This week, I'm joined, as always, by Derek Pite and Andrew Robdrup. Uh, this week, a little later, we're going to have Jonathan Zhang joining. The final nub. He's going to talk about the face-to-face games Open Plus in Vancouver. He took part in this weekend. Uh, before we get started, though, we're going to shout out our sponsors, facefacegames.com, the place to buy, sell, and trade online. You can support the show by checking them out. Once again, big thanks to them, facetofacegames.com. Uh, so there was a lot happening this past weekend. There were some big tournaments as well as some interesting changes to the Wizards Play Network agreement. Uh, so first off, we're going to start talking about the standard PTQ that took place online. Uh, almost half of the top eight was mono green, but it was eventually taken down by a blue-black mid-range deck, splashing for Nickel Bolas the Ravager. Derek, you're our standard guy. Do you have any thoughts on this? Is is this where standards headed? Uh, I think I think this uh, this mono green showing is really um, really shows that people can predict the metagame. And the fact that people are have uh, vine mares in the main deck is really something that I think shows that if you understand the format and if you can like play tight and build your deck correctly, you can crush a PTQ or top eight a PTQ. Uh, I five would with a red green deck with two vine mares on the sideboard and really wish I had four. The card is just bonkers against the blue black decks, and it seems to me that there's a lot of blue black decks online right now. I definitely don't think that the green deck is here to stay, but it's very good if you expect a lot of blue-black decks. Andy, do you have anything to add there? Have you been playing standard at all, getting a chance to dive in? Yeah, I have played it a bit, but I just was uh, wanted to know, Derek, so you think the, the mono green decks are bad against the, the fast red decks or just like the red-black decks? Uh, so the issue I have with the green decks is that you basically need a fast start to, uh, have the decks be powerful. Um, obviously if you go turn one land elves into turn two, five, four, you're at a very good start. But for the most part, like you're not going to be doing that consistently. You're not going to be playing a lot of five fours on turn two, three, or four. If you play one on turn two, right? So if you go like turn two, five, four into turn three, Bronton on, you're just not really doing anything powerful. And then if your opponent interacts with you anyway, like if they push the, your Lana War Elf or if they shock it or if they lightning strike it, um, you then can't cast your really powerful spells when you need to cast them. Or if you don't have the blossoming defense for their removal spell for your one big threat, you're sort of stuck in this weird position where, oh, now I have these Lana War Elves and now I have these like blossoming defenses in my hand that I can't really cast. If you're playing the Galta version, you might have Galta stuck in your hand. So there's like 8 to 12 cards in the deck that are just like very dependent on the circumstance at hand uh, and are actually bad if your opponent plays around them properly or if they have the opportunity to. The powerful thing about the deck is that it curves out, so it pressures you to make plays like unlicensed your creature in combat, blossoming defense in response. But if that's not happening or people can find a way to play around that or plot, uh, play more powerful cards to beat your specific game plan, the green deck sort of like falls apart and isn't as proactive. And I think that really showed in week one when people don't have a deep understanding of the format and it just sort of like popped up out of nowhere, specifically with Vine Mare. But uh, with with week one, everyone like red, black, or mono red was the previous king, and 
the first thing that happens is mono green shows up in large numbers, and there's only one red black or mono red deck in the top eight. So do you think maybe the matchup's not as bad as you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, like that's possible. Um, I also think maybe not that many people registered red black this weekend, or not many people registered red black to beat green decks, because I think that um, like cut to ribbons is that hasn't really been showing up, but cut to ribbons is very good against the green deck. I think a lot of people may have been more prepared for the model blue deck and the Grixis decks. Now, the Grixis deck, I feel, is favored for the mono red side, but it's still a very difficult matchup, especially if they curve out and play Bolas. And I think that if people are losing to these Grixis decks because they're also an unknown quantity, that the green decks specifically are going to rise above the, the black decks. And I think that's what happened is... People weren't playing as much black red because they thought that the the newer form, like this Grixis deck, was more powerful. People weren't prepared exactly for the the green decks, and uh, the the blue black players were not ready for the main deck vine mares or the sideboard vine mares. Um, obviously, there's more than one thing going on. Like maybe the some of the red players got unlucky, or maybe like the the green players just ran hot all day. But I think for the most part, that like green was just an unknown quantity. And now that it's known, like it's probably easier to play around. I assume I could just be wrong, right? Maybe maybe the deck's just the best deck. I probably just need to play it, and try it out. Well, from my previous experience, uh, the mono green decks beat the hyper aggressive red decks because what would happen is like you just get brick walled on turn three or four, and then from there on out you couldn't attack as well. But like the second that that starts happening, then the red black decks emerge again to be even better and start playing like two to three unlicensed and a cut to ribbons. And yeah, that, pro- that probably puts it over the edge. The thing is like, I know that Vine Mare versus Chain Whirler is obviously in Chain Whirler's favor as, as are most interactions. But I think just the threat of having Vine Mare against that deck, if they don't draw Chain Whirler, that card hits very hard and, it's, and can't get killed. And you, outside of Chain Whirler and defensive Hazrets and Phoenixes, you can't block it very well. The sorry. oh sorry continue. So my thought was that maybe like in a normal game where that green might actually be favored over over the red decks and over the black red decks even if they're low on unlicensed and cut. The the one thing I noticed is that the green decks can't beat the Hazret. They have no chance to ever beat or resolve Hazret. Uh, even even if if it can attack or block on turn four, the game's basically over. And then. If they don't get that draw, uh, like if, if they don't play Land War Elves and they just play a natural curve that's not weak to Chain Whirler, uh, sure, maybe they can beat it. But the fact that like Chain Whirler blocks, cleans up random creatures, and you have a Braid and uh, Lightning Strike in your main deck, like I feel that uh, the red deck is actually favored um, simply because if, if the spells line up properly, on average, I think the red deck is just going to have a more powerful, more proactive draw. But, yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny because, like, from, from my point of view, it's like, I feel like the red decks have to have their cards line up better, and the green decks just drawing average will... Like, their cards are better standalones than the red cards in a, in a lot of circumstances. Like, three fours are, are very annoying to deal with. But, um... This PTQ is crazy. There's a lot of cool stuff going on with it, other than just the, the mono green decks. The mono blue uh, storm deck 
with uh, with that new card. Hold on, I'm gonna read its name: Psy Master Thopterist. So two and a blue legendary one four. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, create a one one colorless Thopter creature with flying, and one and a blue sack two artifacts draw a card. Is this deck real? Do you, what do you guys think? Uh, it is. If, if you're playing mono blue, you can't lose to blue black. It's not possible. I've played both sides, and you can't. Like I've beaten mono blue three times with the storm deck, and I've lost to mono blue four times with the Grixis deck and the blue black deck. Both, both. Like I've lost with blue black and Grixis. You just can't beat it. You can bring in four duress, and you can bring in four negates. It doesn't matter. You can't beat it. Uh, that being said, the mono blue deck can't beat black red. No chance. And I'm not over-exaggerating. I have not lost the mono blue deck with red-black yet. You have, like, you have a, a really fast clock and a uh, really good interaction post-board. And they need to have like two or three paradoxicals. And even if they have gained like 15 life, they're still just dead normally. It's, uh, it's really weird. I've never seen a deck that has that big of a swing in two of the most play, other play, most played decks in the format. Is it, is it the Tron of standard? just slaughters this part of the metagame and really can't beat this part of the metagame? I never thought about it like that, but maybe. Like, Psy is an insane card. I, I can't believe that card's only a dollar on Moto. If you have those in paper, like, pick them up. That card is sweet, and it's legendary. And your deck's playing four or three. Like, And if finally, like, a reasonable payoff to Mox Amber, you don't have to run Brawl. Yeah, 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 like, Mox Amber. actually works in the deck. Yeah, it, it's, it's insane. It's... The deck's really sweet. It's very powerful. It's uh, a lot more consistent than I thought it would be. What's your What's your first impression, Elliot? Well, I think it's pretty interesting that not only did one deck make it into the top eight, there's another one at seven one as well, same deck. So, what I'm curious of is: is this like a flash in the plan? Do you think that these people maybe just got lucky playing against blue black a bunch of times in a row, or do you think this is like a real threat people should be looking into? You know, like is there maybe a chance that you can solve the red black matchup? Is there some sideboard card no one's no one's read because it's a draft common that gets t- taken 15th pick like is this the real deal you guys think this deck is the draft common deck that's for sure if there's a card playable that's not found yet it could probably go in this deck i would uh i would err on the side of no it's not a real deck uh it's definitely not a flash in the pan but it's definitely not tier one and it definitely won't dominate the format but it is one of those decks, sort of like Blue White God Pharaoh's Gift, that can just randomly pop up at some time and dominate a format. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but like three weeks before the PT that Pascal Maynard uh, made the finals of, um, Blue White God Pharaoh's Gift just crushed a Moto PTQ, and everybody was scrambling to find this deck for the, the Sunday PTQ at the Grand Prix. I can't remember which one, it, but I, I was there. And everybody was trying, like, the, the vendors were bought out of God Pharaoh's Gift and Refurbish. And I think this, this is the kind of deck that could definitely do that. Like, I had seen the blue-white deck on Moto for weeks leading up to it, but it never really broken through until that happened. And now, it, now you play it, like, once every two leagues or once every league, and if people are really high on it, like, you have to bring your braids this weekend or you have to pack extra duresses. So I, I definitely think it's one of those kind of decks. Maybe not right now. Uh, maybe next format. But it's definitely how, an interesting one. How many braids are you playing right now? Uh, I have two in my main and one in the board, just on my black red moto list. 
um, that may change to like one a braid, one cut ribbon, just because there's so much green online. But I don't know. So what you're telling me is it's time. It, it's the time is right, goddamn now. <laughs> the time is now. What a braid! Yeah, I, I, I've been I, waiting for this moment. Listen, listen, listen. I haven't lost to it yet. So if uh, if you're a mono blue player and you feel like you can beat me, uh, feel free to challenge me anytime you want. Uh, we can record it. And I can show the world how bad the deck is, but that's your call. Now you mentioned that you'd play the deck. Uh, do you think this is a deck that people should maybe pick up for their FNM? Is it a blast to play, or is this just you know play my one card? Doesn't really matter what my opponent's doing as long as they're not killing me. Uh, <laughs> this this I'm very bad at technical play and paper. Oh, that's a lie. I'm not really bad, but I can't play storm and paper. I don't know how people play storm and paper. It's it's insane for you to sit down and be like. I'm going to play this deck for more than a couple hours and remember every little iteration of it. Like the people who do that uh, are insane. I think like, why would you do that to yourself? Um, If if you're looking to play this deck in paper, like you, you better be okay with O three ing or having a huge headache at the end of the night. I personally hate both of those things. So I don't want to do it. But if if you're the person that likes that, this deck's for you. Um, this is a perfect FNM deck. It's wild, it's crazy, it's fun, and maybe it's good. I hate fun. I just don't like fun. Fun I, is uh... You're full of it, dude. <laughs> you're like, yeah, dysphoria, dude. Uh, you're, you ever want to match a magic? That's what I like. Not that often. Fun. <laughs> so, of course, also this weekend, there was a standard... Uh, legacy and modern team Star City Games Open. Uh, that was taken down by Tess or the Epic Storm in Legacy, Jeskai Control in Modern, and a Black Red Midrange deck in Standard. And also of note, in the top eight of the Standard portion at least, there's only one mono green deck and a lot of red decks. Do you guys, it's really just the opposite of what we saw, saw in the Standard PTQ. Do you, do you think this is more like a realistic look at Standard, Derek? You, you said uh, the green decks maybe not so good. Is this more what you? What's up your alley? Uh, yeah, sort of. Um, the the one thing I, I do notice about the difference between Moto and Paper events is that uh, people on Moto tend to switch decks really quickly if they think a deck is good. Uh, paper people in Paper are usually slower to adjust, and it usually depends on the the region or area of which these people are coming from. For SCGs, I guess it's less impactful um, given the circumstance because these people are flying out and grinding these events weekly. But I think there's less of a chance that uh, the SCG meta shapes anything than the Moto meta does simply because uh, like they're less likely to be on something new because they can't acquire the cards. They don't have the actual practice or uh, like these people aren't actually playing the decks that they think are broken in these events. Right. Um, so maybe it's possible, but I usually air, I don't look at a lot of paper results. I'm talking about like good deck lists. I usually look at moto results and, uh, PTQs and GP top eights. These SCGs are kind of random for me. So I don't know. Yeah. I think that the SCG, like when you look at the standard list and you're like, Oh, look at all the black red. I think what happens over and over again, you see this is that 
in team events, people take way less chances. And if I went up to you and, was, and I was on your team and I'm like, hey, there's this mono green deck. I swear it's really good right now. And I'll be like, or I could play a black red. Both your teammates are going to be like, oh, let's play black red. Because they're going to be focusing on their format. And they like, nobody can fault you for playing black red. If you play mono green and you're wrong, you could, you could look pretty stupid. Like if you just play it into the complete wrong metagame. But you're just never going to look stupid playing black red, even if it's a worse choice for that weekend. So I think that a team tournament just blows that out of proportion every time. You see way less wacky decks. Like remember the team GP, uh, where the like there was no wacky modern decks basically at all. It was just only like tier one modern decks played in day two because like all the teams were just like make sure you play what's best in modern, and not play like your 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 the deck that you like the most. Yeah, like, I still can't believe that Merfolk won a, a Grand Prix or, like, Scred Red won a Grand Prix. Like, it, it just blows me away. Like, these people just grind these decks out. They know how to play them better than anybody else. They take them to a Grand Prix, and somehow they spike the event. But this isn't going to happen every time. You go to your FM and these, oh, well, Elves won the Grand Prix last weekend. So it's the best deck in modern. And, and Scred won a Grand Prix a couple of months ago, so... I'm pretty sure it's viable, right? Pick up your snow-covered mountains. Ah, you know, and that's, that's how, I, how I feel about random paper events, whereas, like, Almodo, maybe this deck will 5-0, but it's, like, for the most part, I don't know, it's usually tuned deck lists or people that know exactly how to sideboard properly. It's funny that you mentioned the, the modern, like, the deck that won the GP. Like, people are like, I'm not going to play. It's still bad. That's, like, only happens in modern. It's the only format where a deck could just win a GP, and everyone's like, yeah, still, still friggin' bad. Like, can't play that deck. But, like, in standard, when someone wins, they're like, oh, maybe I need to take another look at this deck. But in modern, unless there's, like, three copies in the top eight or it's Matt Nass with KCI, no one takes a look at these decks. They only take a look at like the large picture, like a large number of decks in a top eight or sixteen or a thirty-two. No one takes any single result seriously, thanks to the Merfolk player and the the Scred Red player and uh, those players of the world. So before we move on from standard here, do you guys have any decks that you're you're really looking forward to testing out or maybe seeing more of? Uh, Andy, you said something about the blue-black Godfarer's Gift deck? Yeah, so that deck is... So Godfarer's Gift and all of its companion cards, the Gate to the Afterlife stuff, is obviously like pretty powerful stuff. Like We've seen green-blue decks, we've seen white-blue decks, we've seen red-blue decks. Well, now it's time for a black-blue Godfarer's Gift deck. And what really happened is that it got a pretty bananas one-mana enabler in Stitcher's Supplier. So it's black for a 1-1 zombie. When it enters the battlefield or dies, put the top three cards of your library into your graveyard. This card screams to me just to be like a niche all-star. Like, so this card works with like Gravecrawler. It has crazy synergies and dredge that it could be good in. It screams to do busted things and to be just a perfect role player in a lot of decks that aren't playing fair. So I, when I look at this card and I see this deck full of things that are like sort of broken, trying to do things a little unfair, and you have an enabler that's also all in on trying to do things that are unfair, I think it's worth taking a second look. Like, Minister of Inquiries and Stitcher Supplier, both being very good one-drops, is very powerful for the deck. 
So I think it's worth taking a second look at it at the very least, especially if Derek's playing what a braid in this deck. So Derek, I'll ask your thoughts on, on the Blue Black God for his gift deck in a second. But first, welcome to the show, Jonathan Zhang, who just joined us in the middle of Andy's talk. Uh, can't wait to hear more from you in a bit about the uh, legacy and modern metagame as well as the Vanguard Open Plus. Uh, to catch you up, we're talking about Standard right now, finishing up with decks that Andy likes uh, off of the, sta the Standard PTQ and the SCG Open this weekend. Uh, welcome. Uh, yeah, so I, I played it for one league and handily went 3-2 with it. Um, I realized that when I don't draw gate, I can't win. And that's about how the deck runs. When I play it against Black Red, if they don't draw gate, I win. And if they draw gate, I lose. And out of the 10 times I've played against it over probably like 30 leagues so far, uh, it, that's just how, how the deck feels. Like sometimes you have the abrade when they have the one of God Pharaoh's gift and then Sometimes you don't, and they just run you over with hostage takers and random stitchers, apprentices, or whatever that card's called. But uh, for the most part, I feel like the deck's pretty fragile, but powerful. Uh, I definitely don't know if it's the best version of the deck. Scarab God's a hell of a card. Um, I think if you're just, you're just planning to sideboard into Scarab God against the mid-range matches, then why aren't you just playing like blue-black something? But uh, the fact that you have this crazy one-drop that's actually insane when your opponent plays Chain Roller against you kind of piques my interest, makes me really happy to want to play that card in my deck, but for the most part, I don't know how good the deck is actually. <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's a little bit of randomness to it, right? Sometimes you mill the wrong card, or sometimes you, uh, you draw the wrong, in the wrong order, or sometimes you like, play a land when you shouldn't have, or you like, attack wrong or block wrong or something, and I don't like decks like that. It just, it just feels to me like you have to actually play perfectly. And sometimes playing that way means like playing so deep that it's sometimes wrong and sometimes right. Um, and there's not actually a correct way to play normally. It's, it's a really weird uh, circumstance. I just don't like to play decks like that. I'll just play red. Yeah. Citrus Supplier reminds me a lot of like Seder Wayfinder where like, what it does is like pretty innocuous and doesn't seem that powerful, but it's going to be like the the best cog in your wheel for your big engine deck, right? Like it's nothing. Nothing could possibly be better at doing what it does than it. It's so crazy, actually, how powerful it is for just a for just a one drop. And I, I can't wait, and I hope that we see it. Uh, you know, being able to be abused at some point in standard, at the very least. Like, in Modern, it's already starting to show up. I've, I've played against it a couple times in, like, Dredgevine decks and stuff like that. And, like, obviously on the surface, it's pretty powerful. So like, maybe someone will break it in Modern, because that certainly looks like a breakable card in Modern to me. Not that I'm smart enough to break it, but I think it's possible. It's a very powerful card, and it's in standard for another two years. So I hope to see it go bananas. Yeah, I remember when uh, people would like turn two Seder Wayfinder into turn two Tassiger, or turn three Tasker, or turn four, uh, or turn three, sorry, Gurmag Angler. And then it's like, okay, if you waste your Abzan Charm on this, you're down a card, and then I'll just jam Seed Rhino. And it also fixed your mana. It was just like that, that card was sweet. And when it worked, it worked. But when it didn't, <laughs> you got kind of sewered. So I feel, I feel that way about Stitcher's Apprentice. It was Dark Ritual draw card. Seder Wayfinder was was busted. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what it was. And uh, 
and <laughs> Yogmon's bargain is Argyle's bloodfast. <laughs> so, Jonathan, I guess we'll give your mic another chance here. Do you have Do you have any thoughts on standard? Yeah, it's it's funny that you guys. Um, I, I walked into this at the right time because I actually started playing um, Blue Black Gift. Um, uh, a, f- a few days ago, and um, I heard I heard about what you guys are talking about. I think Stitcher's Fire is very, very, very good. And for one mana, uh, milling for six cards—that's an unprecedented rate. Of course, you have to get a, you have to have a stack outlet, or you have to get it um, into the graveyard to get full six cards of value. But I think it's a rate that we haven't seen anywhere before. And you know, we're, we're already seeing it in Legacy in uh, uh, Goblin Goblin Bombardment. I can see it in Dredge in Modern, and I, I think that I'm very excited to keep trying um, uh, to try the um, try to optimize the gift list in the standard season because I think the the card is pretty broken, and there's a lot of support cards in black. And yeah, I, I don't think we're anywhere near the final iteration of what the best uh, black X standard uh, gift deck right now is. But um, you know, in, in in the few leagues I played in, for example, I the red i was winning some games against against red for example and i expected that matchup to be very hard because of a braid and um you know just getting run over before you can get set up just having another one mana dork that can block uh and you know a, a bunch of um the support cards in black that helped me a lot with it so um i'm i think it's very promising um i i, I see some um flaws in the current list right now like um main deck main deck siphoners for example but um, I'm excited to keep uh, iterating on this uh, blue-black archetype, and maybe it's not even blue-black. All right, so from there, I guess we'll we'll welcome you to the show by by going right into the Vancouver Open Plus that happened this past weekend. Uh, it was, of course, modern and taken down by, let me just find his name real quick, uh, Andrew, Andrew Johnson. Steven Johnson, playing a Vizier Company deck. Uh, once again, proving, I guess, that anything can win in modern, sort of what we were just talking about before. Uh, so you were there. You played Blue Green Infect, a big change from Grishel Brand. Can you talk us through your thought process for that one? Yeah, it, it was it was um, a few reasons that, that came together to um, for me to select Infect here. Um, one was that, really, I've been playing um, Grishel Brand for the past year or so straight, and you know, it's really fun, and it's it's fun to do busted things, kill people on turn ones and all that, but I felt like, you know, because I've been jamming this linear combo deck on and on and on, I felt like, you know, I was, like, stifling my growth as a magic, overall magic player. You know, I'm a combo guy by, by heart, but um, I felt like if I don't ex- expose myself to different play patterns, I was just going to keep getting stuck, and if I want to get better, I, I want to, I think I need to try something new and, you know, get a new perspective. But I'm still a combo guy at heart, so I can't stray too far from the path. Um, in terms of Infect, that was a pretty measured, um, measured um, choice here. Um, I, I had some rumbling in the Vancouver local area that there was some sort of uh, KCI cabal brewing, and there was an underground uh, KCI dojo where people were just training and like getting ready to bring out their KCIs and try to turn like turn through combo everyone, and I think that Infect, um, first of all, Aaron Barrett obviously won the uh, uh, the Invitational and side won his um, won his SCG event as well. And the more I thought about it, you know, if your meta game is full of um, big big mana to combat the blue white XX and the green black XX, as well as having these like mediocre well, quote mediocre combo decks that are slow but resilient, 
I figured that Infect was going to give me a very good chance. And my model still for Modern is that it's uh, you, you play what you know, but you also want to play on power level as well as, you know, you, you got you got to have a high power high enough power level deck, and you got to play the matchup bingo well. And I, I personally believe that playing something like Jeskai is rarely the right choice because of the wrong half of the deck uh, problem that you always face in a in a format as wide as modern. And I felt like there was enough um, good matchups in, uh, for Infect that I thought that it was a worthy worthy choice. And uh, I rolled my dice, and uh, obviously it didn't work out. But you know, I don't regret the choice at all. And uh, I, I feel like um, if I want to get better, I need to get more new perspectives and uh, try different things. So it's really interesting that you brought up just changing decks for the sake of changing decks, really getting a new getting a new look on the format. Andy, have you ever have you ever thought about that? Just played a deck for the sake of not playing the same one? Yeah, I used to for a long time. I only played uh, like hard mid range decks. Like any opportunity, if the mid range deck was like tier 1, 1.52, I would play it over any other deck. And then eventually I started to talk about, uh, or started to play Control. And I, I wanted to start playing Control because I thought that also could play to some of my strengths of like resource management and uh, understanding the other people's threats. So yeah, I started to play a lot of Control. And honestly, I think Control and Midrange are by far the two strategies that I'm the best at playing and most naturally play. But uh, I've started branching off into other sort of like finicky aggro decks. Like I play a lot of humans and affinity in modern, and I've played a ton of affinity. And affinity just looks like it's so wide out of my range that I usually play. But what I thought is that at the time for modern, I decided that affinity I thought was maybe the best deck. This is when uh, it was all Death Shadow and uh, Eldrazi Tron. And I was like, affinity is insane in this meta game. So I just like, Bought it on Moto and uh, recorded like 150, 200 matches on Moto of me playing it. And then eventually I was like, oh my God, I know how to play Affinity now. And now like I can understand the mindset of like doing the big, like the, the combat math for like many turns ahead to try and kill your opponent, to do weird things to kill your opponent through certain removal spells. And it starts by like sitting yourself down into a spot where, where you're pretty uncomfortable playing sort of a an archetype that you don't naturally just love to play and and feel like you know how to play just by virtue of playing similar archetypes for so long and i think it is an important thing to do to get better and eventually hopefully it'll be like all the archetypes will feel like that will feel like you don't care what you play you just want to play the best deck and that's obviously the point where you want to get is where you're comfortable playing all sides of the spectrum from aggro to control to combo to tempo to like decks that are in between them all. So I think it's an important uh, thing to do to yourself if it doesn't happen naturally by like deck selection through formats as they evolve. Like I think you yourself, Elliot, have done that when you didn't think you were a good control player, you just forced yourself to play a bunch of control. Did it work? Uh <laughs> Well, it's really debatable, I guess, how you want to consider whether or not I'm a good control player now. Uh, I, I think so. Um, but Derek, you know, in the past couple of weeks, we've talked about you trying a bunch of different standard decks. Of course, last format, you played just a bunch of just blue-black mid-range. Do you consider yourself a versatile player, or, or do you think you get stuck in some ruts sometimes? 
Uh, I definitely get stuck in some ruts. I hate playing control in any format. I feel like uh, just the way the archetypes break down, control is by far the worst possible archetype, simply because you have to be an answer deck compared to a threat deck. And if your answers don't line up properly and you can't beat the threats, you just lose the game. And the way you win the game is actually just not winning the game. It's actually like, oh, my opponent just decided they don't want to play any more threats. Uh, it's like traditionally, like blue-black just played the Scarab God until your opponent couldn't deal with the Scarab God anymore. And then sometimes it was that you played Elspeth until they couldn't deal with Elspeth anymore. Or you played more Sphinx's Revelations than your opponent. I don't want to do that. If at any point your opponent has some small answer to these cards, it's like, oh, I can't win because my deck actually doesn't win. Whereas like mid-range is like, oh, I have Siege Rhinos and I have Elspeths or I have Scarab Gods and I have Glinsteed Siphoners or Aggro is like, I have Lightning Bolts and Lightning Helixes or I have Chain Whirlers and Hazarets and Chandras, right? Uh, so I would say I'm an awful controlled player simply because the, the archetype's garbage and I would never touch it. But for the most part, like I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty tight mid-range player when I understand the format and combo. I don't really like combo, but mm. so are are control decks uh, things that you might find yourself playing more often when they're good, just to to branch out, or is this just like a control has to be the stones in order to get you to play it? Yeah, if a control deck is good, it's broken. It's it's bannable. Um, and any other time, it's not playable. And you, you can take that uh, as gospel, and that is the most true thing I've ever said in my entire life. Chase the Mind Sculptor is broken and modern. Yeah, like, <laughs> if Chase the Mind Sculptor was busted, it would be re-banned. But it's not busted, right? So control decks are bad. He I did just prove you, his point there. I do get what you mean, though. Like, what, what, what you're saying is that, like, if a control deck is too good, then... It, yeah, I, I can't describe it. I'm did you off play? It. Did you play standard during Sphinx's Rev? Uh, yeah, I did. I played mono black or black white devotion. Right, I played mono red, and I remember people just talking to me about playing Sphinx's Rev and just being like, "I just cast the first one for two on turn five, and I can't lose the game because I untap and play Elspeth, and if they deal with my Elspeth, I have the second Sphinx's Rev." It's like the rest of the cards in the deck did not matter. It just stopped every other card and. I don't. I, I'm pretty sure Wizards came out with an article saying like, we're reevaluating how we ban cards. Like some of the cards we would have banned is Sphinx's Revelation, Collect a Company. And it's just like Sphinx's Revelation was actually a broken control deck because that card is too good for standard. Same with Elspeth. Uh, I think I think you're complaining about the wrong era of Sphinx Rev when it was only like the elixir of immortality. That's when you should be complaining. Okay, whatever. Sphinx that was miserable. Yeah, the, the, the fact that that card was printed was ridiculous. I don't know. Yeah, Elixir's pretty broken. <laughs> How about Quicken, eh? Oh my gosh. <laughs> was it Faded Retribute? It didn't matter what the deck played, man. I was like, no, Quicken? Uh, instant Speed Wrath you? Uh, Sphinx is rev for 20. Uh, this game's going to take another uh, 30 minutes. Uh, do you want to keep playing? I guess. <laughs> What if he drew 12 lands? Yeah, I was like, congrats. Like, I'm, I'm 14 years old. That was standard for six months. I just, whatever. Like, I'm, I'm happy they don't do that anymore. Like, I'm happy Teferi is not an actual broken magic card. It's kind of balanced. You can kill it. I don't know. <laughs> 
So Jonathan, towards uh, the end of your thoughts on the Vancouver Open, you said that Infect was a deck that you really didn't regret. You thought it was still a great choice despite your result. Is that is that where you see Modern at? Do you think you need to be playing like a hyper-aggressive, maybe not combo if you're trying to branch out, but either way, just a hyper-linear deck trying to win the game as fast as possible? So right now, I think that um, if, if you need to take a stance is what I'm, what I'm thinking here. So if you want to play on the combo axis, you don't want to be in the middle of the combo axis like Ad Nauseam or maybe Storm, which are, which are a bit more resilient, but a bit slower. Um, they're going to get destroyed by a faster deck like Brand Cheerios, or, um, you, know, you know, I think Cheerios was third place in um, the SCG Classic. Um, this last weekend, and that kind of supports my point of you know, like you gotta make a stand, you gotta play a high enough power level deck, and you gotta be able to play the matchup bingo game well. And in that regard, I do support playing something like Grishel Brand or Infect if you wanna play combo. And I, I do think that Grishel Brand is in a uh, very good position again because humans are finally um, uh, declining, and uh, humans is really de- uh, de- uh, oppressing the combo archetype. and now that the uh, Jeskai and the Blue White X and the Tron decks have come out of the woodworks, I think it's it's time for Combo to start oppressing back these um, counter oppressors, I guess. But the other other archetype I really like right now, if I, if you don't want to play Combo, is um, Tron here. And um, there was an article today by Ross Merriam that kind of posed the question of why don't why don't good players want to play Tron? And I think people are just averse to you know turn three carning people because they've had really bad experience getting turn three carned them, themselves and people generally like control and mid-range decks and you know those of course get c- c- crushed by uh, Urza's Tower but I think that given that humans had the uh, target and humans were the um, baseline of what you need to be doing modern there's a bunch of G- uh, GBX and Blue White X uh, decks right now. Mardu Mardu is obviously very big right now and in that regard I think that you want to go big mana you want to you either go combo to the extreme and go as fast as you can, and you want to go to the other extreme, which is big mana. And I think a Tron list would, would be um, very, very good right now. And maybe, like, if I can suggest, like, a uh, sideboard tweak or two, I think the card Gutshot is very good right now. And I wouldn't be surprised if Tron um, would be better served playing some Gutshots over uh, Contortions or a Warping Whale. My reason being that some of the best aggro decks like Infect, Affinity, uh, Humans, uh, uh, Vizier Company, which traditionally have given um, a Tron a uh, hard time or um, are very popular, Gutshot does all the work you, you want in the world against them. So maybe maybe that it's time to switch off of the slower spatial contortion and start playing Gutshot. So I, I think those are my two uh, two uh, recommendations here. I definitely do not want to be in the um, the, the mid range um, side of the spectrum. Uh, that's for sure. So yeah. Jonathan's taking a hard stance that a lot of people don't want to hear. He claims you should be playing Tron right now. Andy, are you gonna are you gonna sleeve up Tron after this? Are you gonna go inspired right into the modern leagues? I'm going to go to the underground Tron dojo. I'm going to train day in, day out. I'm going to go up and down the escalator. <laughs> but, uh, well, Tron, Tron's good. Tron, like, the, the notion that good players don't play Tron is, it's true, but it's just ridiculous. Like, if Tron's the best deck, you should play it. And, like, we've seen Owen Turtenwald, perhaps the best player in the world right now, play Tron at the Modern Pro Tour and play Tron in GPs. And which matter a lot to him, 
And it, the deck's good. The deck is is much more consistent than people think. But what happens is players that are like consider themselves good players get stuck in this notion that like they they need to control their fate more. They need to control what happens to them. And they don't understand that deck selection can be a part of that choice and part of that control. And they just think that Tron is just a deck that plays its cards, which a lot of the time it does in the early turns and then in the late turns it plays the things it can cast. But they have to understand that like the the edge you're getting from winning is in your deck selection and not necessarily like playing the games perfectly with Tron because honestly it likely matters less, but there's still bad Tron players out there who keep hands you shouldn't be keeping, myself included. Trying to play Tron, I kept a lot of bad hands that I didn't understand at the time were bad. So, like, Tron has its nuances too, but people shouldn't hate on it as much. I think they hate it because there's, like, this, like, subset of decks that just can't beat it. Can yeah. almost never beat it. No matter what happens. Tron could draw horrible, and they just can't beat it. But, like, I don't know. Grow up. Play some, play some hate. Like there's decks that Tron can't beat. I, I, first of all, I can't believe all of you are Tron sympathizers. Like, come on. <laughs> Second of all, did you just tell the casuals to grow up? Like, I don't think you can tell the casuals to grow up. Like, Jund players aren't casuals. They own Tarmogoyfs and Jund, confidants. Jund, yep. Jund, Jund players at this point only own Tarmogoyfs and Lilianas to say they own Tarmogoyfs and Lilianas. Everybody knows Mardu is the new hotness. Come on now. <laughs> if they were real modern players, they would have switched over for young Pyromancers. Hey, even Reed Duke um, switched over from Jund to Mardu in, uh, at, at Las Vegas, so yeah, you're, you're totally right, Derek. Yeah. Next thing you see, we're going to see Chain Rollers and Modern beating up on the young Pyromancers of the world. You heard it here first. Uh, get your hot tech from me. Uh, Modern's still probably unplayable, though, and I can't believe you guys like Tron. <laughs> All right, so some words of encouragement for Tron and some words of discouragement for playing Modern. We have it all here. Uh, and just as we wrap on Modern, can't, can't not remind you that the next stop on the face-to-face -face Open Plus Tour is in Edmonton, Alberta this weekend, July 21st. So if you're looking to battle in some Modern, make sure you check that out. You can find the event page on Facebook. Edmonton, Alberta is the next Open Plus stop. So just before we wrap up, there were some pretty big changes, uh, maybe relative to the uh, Wizard Play Network agreement that all stores have to abide by. Uh, venues hosting magic tournaments can now serve alcohol and uh, tournaments can now have age requirements on them. Do you guys think this is going to, is going to make a big change or is this just sort of just some fine print that, that won't ever affect anything? Andy. It, it's hard for me. Like I don't experience a, a local scene as much, but I, I don't, I don't. So the upside is, maybe there for the people who want it, but the, I don't even see it affecting me almost ever. Maybe I can drown my sorrows at a Grand Prix sometime 2019. But, like, I could already get sloshed and play Moto. Like, <laughs> they couldn't stop me then. Now I could just do it in public? But anyways, I actually don't like the idea of it personally, but I, maybe it's because I'm just not seeing where the benefits are, but I don't like the idea overall. Jonathan, do you have a take on this? Well, I, I don't really play much on paper either, but I do go to, go to my local store from time to time, and I realize that um, I know that in Vancouver, at the very least, there's a lot of um, 
um, anywhere from casuals to aspiring spikes that are um, underage in high school, and they make a pretty big part of the LGS scene. Um, so in, in that regard, it might be a negative, but I, I think that the, this only affects a real small subset of stores that can um, serve alcohol and host, um, host uh, uh, tournaments, et cetera. So I'm not, I'm not sure if this is like smaller than what we're making it out to be. And I, I kind of do think that um, having the optionality for the stores is never a bad idea, but um, I could totally, totally be wrong here. I'm missing an angle or two. I, uh, yeah, I, I think this, I personally don't like it simply because I think mixing alcohol with people being competitive is normally pretty bad. Uh, take a look at like sports games in general, like people fighting and throwing stuff uh, when their teams lose, like, come on. Like sometimes I tilt when I play magic, imagine the people who actually tilt and there's drinking involved and you're in a local setting. I don't know. It, it seems to me like this, like if, if you want to drink with your buddies, just do it at your house and draft at your house or like Skype in your friends and have a couple beers after work. I don't necessarily think we need to, um, to like really legalize having alcohol at, uh, like F and M that being said, like, I guess if you really want to create a safe space, you should just allow everything. So like, I guess the first step to making it feel more comfortable is allowing it to happen. But, um, I think given the circumstance of our community right now, I don't know if it's necessarily a good idea, but uh, maybe that's just the pessimist in me uh, compared to seeing how businesses can really flourish and create a nice new experience for us players to come out to our local scenes and enjoy a nice draft and a draft. Who knows? Yeah, I, I think, I think what maybe you and I are missing Derek is that like, I, this is probably likely just for like a special event type things, right? Like, it's probably not going to matter almost at all ever to us. I, I, I feel like these special events we wouldn't go to anyway. I feel like the times where it does matter, it's really negative or the times where it, it does matter where it's positive is like so small already. So like I could only see this causing a lot more harm than good on average. That yeah, being said, like, I don't, I don't know. Right. That's, maybe that's on the TO to like, make sure that those experiences are the positive ones. And like Watsi should just give them the freedom to make those positive experiences for that subset of group right. when before it wasn't allowed. Right. So uh, maybe that's where, where it's okay. is like that there's going to be some people that benefit, but if, if they aren't going to benefit, then don't do it. But like Watsi yeah. giving more power to TOs who might mess it up maybe is a bad thing, but I think they just have to like trust the TOs, trust, trust the process. Right, which is which is probably reasonable. It's better to have like the the people having the power compared to the overbearing hand of the the Watsi. They already dictate so many things that we don't like. So maybe we shouldn't complain when they give us little things like drinking at local stores. Well, so we've only touched on the drinking part, Elliot. Did you mention the age restriction? Yeah, so the other half of the announcement I did mention earlier is that you can now have an age restriction on a tournament. You could have a a 21-plus tournament and only have drinking there. You could have a 16-and-under tournament, maybe tied to your F&M, have people bring their kids kind of thing. And I think this is super interesting because something that you guys might not know 
is that some other of the trading card games like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh have some pretty thriving under 16 competitions. In Yu-Gi-Oh, it's, it's called Dragon Duels. I know that. I'm not sure what it's called in Pokemon. I think it's called the Junior Championships. So mm. it's sort of something we had in Magic in the past. You know, back in the day, the Pro Tour used to be split into like a juniors and a seniors. Do you guys think this might be something that Wizards is heading towards? Or do you think this is just Wizards trying to be hands-off? If, if I had to give a very, very early look in, I would say this is a big step in not allowing minors to play in Grand Prix and maybe trying to open up the gambling laws so that they can offer bigger prizes and different sort of options for Magic events. Um, maybe not because the, the gambling laws in the States are still really, really bad. But uh, for countries like Canada, maybe, maybe this is an option they're looking into. Uh, I I am not a lawyer in any sense of the what like the law or whatever, but that's just something I could I could see as uh, like twenty one plus nineteen plus grand prix and such for bigger prizes. Yeah, if if your community is large enough to support like a, like separating the age groups, like as a parent or something, I'd be much happier to send like my 12 to 14 year old to a tournament full of under 16s than like playing against like the 32 year old guy or like the the 55 year old FNM grinder who's kind of weird. But like, <laughs> you know what I mean though? Like, I would be more comfortable sending my kid to play with a bunch of other kids than like adults who might take it way more seriously than my kid casting Lana Warolf into Steel Leaf Champion into Galta. <laughs> but uh, I think it's all, it sounds like all upside to me. Like assuming that, well, it's not all upside because obviously like there might be some hard feelings on like getting cut off of the age group or cut out of a tournament that you think is pretty cool. But I think it gives a pretty cool opportunity for like the big stores to uh run tournaments for younger people to to usher in the younger generation where it's a lot less intimidating than like going to an fnm full of a bunch of full-grown adults and honestly that's intimidating as like a 12 13 year old to talk to and hang around with these full-grown adults holy and uh kyt with the expert suggestion of the 75 plus senior tour <laughs> Chris Pakula finally will make the Hall of Fame of something. Hey, be nice, all right? We don't want we don't want him coming after the show. We're gonna get shut down real quick, all right? Our we boy Elliot. We're next. Yeah, we we just need to follow that up with like some pro heavy metal talk, and maybe Chris Pakula will spare us. Yeah, like maybe maybe me or Elliot are trying to help get that gamers helping gamers uh, scholarship, right? Like, be nice to them. They're, I'm also in school. Oh yeah, like no, you it's know? not in school. I'm done school. Oh it's my gosh, I can't believe you just roasted. Oh, I can't. This is unreal. I can't do this. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned that Vancouver at least has a bunch of younger players. Do you think that this is something that stores might implement to attract them? I, I think that it's a pretty cool thing, actually, to have tournaments and events that have a variety of age groups, you know, just like having like uh, high school kids mingle, like, you know, just training them socially to mingle with people that are not like them, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I, I know that I have seen these like hard nose spike grinders who's in the 30s, like 20s, 30s and 40s. And they've given people, they've given kids some hard time or try to rules lawyer them because 
they think that they're the easy to take advantage of. And that's something that I definitely um, um, don't condone or don't like to see. So in that regard, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was Andy or uh, Derek that said it, but I think, um, yeah, as a parent, I, I'd be more comfortable um, sending uh, my kids to play with like their, his peers rather than people with who, who knows what. But then at the same time, I think this is mostly an all upside type of a restriction here. Obviously, I think there might be like room for abuse by the TO or something like that. But um, practically speaking, I, I, I'd like to see where this goes. Um, it was interesting to learn that Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon has these like ju uh, junior circuits. I, I found that pretty curious. I think that would really encourage um, uh, younger kids to start playing, coming out and playing. So that, that, that would be an interesting pre precursor. And to what Derek said, I, I, I think it would be a pretty interesting precursor um, to um, having a price, price pool that um, scales like these gambling events. I think people have been like kind of clamoring for that, but couldn't, uh, WOTC could not, haven't been able to do it because of gambling loss. So um, I'm interested to see where this goes. Um, I, I'm not going to make any judgments yet. I can see arguments on both sides, but uh, I want to see what their follow-up is. Yeah, a weird touch on the gambling laws is that if the Aetherworks Marvel GP is not gambling, what is? <laughs> Spin your wheels. So I guess just before we wrap up, we can't really pass up uh, or end this Canadian podcast without talking about the recent Canadian tariffs that were implemented. We are now going to be paying an extra 10% on sealed product. I know face-to-face -face is already implemented on for all future sealed product they get. I know Wizards Tower, another big store from Ottawa, had a feature on CBC about it. Like, do you guys do you guys think that this is going to really hamper things in Canada, or do you think things are just going to proceed as normal and we'll pay a bit more? I think it's going to make uh, sealed products like ten percent more expensive. <laughs> wow did you did you go to school for business? Oh my gosh! Could you show me the the numbers on this? Oh wow! But uh, genius on the show. Oh my god! For, uh, yeah, with distinction, by the way. I graduated with distinction. With. But, um, Do I have to pay tax on that ten percent? I don't know how it works. Oh my god! <sighs> but um, in in all seriousness, like it's obviously just a a, a big negative because like with the the with our dollar going down, it was already like I remember the days where I'd pay one hundred and twenty Canadian dollars and I would get a booster box. And now it's like I pay one hundred and twenty Canadian dollars plus tax for a booster box. So now it's just like up twenty something dollars, which is a, a bigger jump than ten percent, which we lost in our dollar. And I know I haven't bought a booster box ever since, but I'm not sure I'm the target audience for buying a booster box. I would, I would love to see like how much of a deterrent this is for people. Like when you, when a booster box starts not just being like a little bit more than a hundred or a bit more than a hundred to being like. 160 170 it gets like harder and harder to justify like 320 dollars for two booster boxes you could buy a playstation you like you could buy so many other things so at this point i i'm i'm not sure if it's going to affect things like as much as the percent is but it's certainly negative it's certainly going to be a negative i just hope we can we can survive long enough for this the spat to end, but I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. I think uh, one of the worst things, like, so when, when me, Gabe Sang, and David Rude lost the finals of the PTQ in DC, we each came back with seven and a half boxes. 
um, we, we told the border police that we had product on us. They didn't ask how much, but I know for a fact that it was like, if you value them at a hundred dollars each, that's, uh, $2,200. Uh, we're not allowed to have that much money in product coming over at MSRP. If they start checking more frequently because of these tariffs, it's going to be a lot harder for us to bring over product if from Grand Prix and stuff or even like winnings. Right. So like, I think it's, it's not just going to be hard. Like if we're buying product, like I don't buy boxes, uh, but I've been to a couple Grand Prix where I've won like a case cause I scrubbed out of the main event and decided to grind side events. Uh, it's just going to be like, it's just going to be awful for us. And there's nothing good about this. Um, I, I think like, drafts are going to go through the roof and nobody's going to be drafting an epidemic anymore because the drafts are going to be so expensive. It's like goodbye Canadian limited. Uh, hello playing moto more. Uh, on the other hand, like the, the American dollar is going up. So if anybody wants to buy tickets from me, now's the time to do so. Uh, <laughs> at misplaced ginger, you know where to find me. <laughs> so quick shout out to ghost empire in the chat. He chimed in. Uh, I think it's pretty terrible. I've seen some places charge $20 for drafts now. That's crazy to me. I can't imagine ever paying $20 for a draft. It's hard enough to get me out to draft in the first place. Slap a $20 price tag on there. I'll never come. Yeah, man. The, there's a store in uh, in Dundas that has like some some really good Magic players in Southern Ontario at it, and they charge $19. And like that's a good price, and you have some very competitive players drafting there. And like... I, I could see some places charging $25. Like I remember when, like, I guess it would be almost five to seven years ago. Now we used to pay $10 for a draft. We would just pay like at MSRP and be like a pack per prize. And now that's never going to happen again. You play $10 for constructed events. It's ridiculous. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. I like it. I like how Derek's first complaint is like, all these booster boxes are going to be worth so much when I take them over the border that they're going to arrest me. I'm going to have, so, sorry, sir, I have four grand in boosters in the back. Have you seen so the size of me? Tax jail. When they, when they look at me, they're like, that kid's sketchy. And then they put me in jail. But, and I can uh, never grind moto ever again. The, 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 when you guys brought up the price of a draft, it just like speaks so hard to me because like every once in a while I'll decide to like go out to a local draft. It's so seldom, but I remember when I would pay ten dollars and for a booster draft, and then twelve dollars if there was prize support. And then I went to a, a draft at one of my favorite stores. I love this store, and they charged me fifteen dollars for a booster draft. I was like, all right, whatever. It's a little expensive, and I three out and I got just nothing. There's no prize support because that's just how much booster packs are and like you can't really fault them because they're just going to start losing money doing these drafts so i don't know what what it's going to mean if if they ask me for 20 dollar bill to draft i'm just going to leave i don't think i would pay 20 dollars for a draft i i've paid 18 dollars before and i regretted it ever since <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a bit of a lunacy there, the pricing here. And I'm just going to chime in and add that I think that the uh, Magic plane demographic is, I think it's pretty price sensitive to um, uh, even like a small change here. You know, we, we got the uh, high schoolers or, you know, college students or it, it's mainly, it's it's mostly a hobby for many people. And when these prices go up uh, in this um, a significant manner like this, I think it's very easy for them to 
um, either go back to constructed where they don't have to, you know, keep uh, paying up every time or go find another hobby. So unfortunately, uh, I think this is uh, all this is um, trade posturing, but I don't, unfortunately, it's, I think it's going to affect us pretty materially negatively and um, it, it, it might last a bit, I'm afraid. Maybe these $20 drafts will have a, an artificial 21 plus rider on them and get the age restriction going already. Uh, uh, so before, sorry, Andy. If you're, if you're under 16, you can draft with one booster pack. <laughs> it's all they can afford. All right. So before we end on, a, on maybe a bit of a somber note, uh, do you guys have anything you want to shout out? Uh, Derek, do you want to shout out the stream? Uh, shout out the, the misplaced ginger stream. Uh, we're getting up there. I have some subscribers now. I'm almost at 2,000 followers on Twitch. And uh, I almost have the donation goal that I set to get a GoPro so I'm at, I can make a vlog for uh, PT25. It's going to be a lot of fun, I hope. I hope it's not too rambunctious. Uh, so, yeah, you should come check out my stream. And watch me tilt off every once in a while. <laughs> and Jonathan, if people want to find you online, is there a place where they can talk to you about modern or talk to you about Grishel brand? Yeah, I've been meaning to uh, set up a Twitch Twitch stream. I got the webcam and everything. People have people kept a, have um, people have kept asking me, you know, do you stream? Do you make videos? And I plan on doing that, but I don't have that set up yet. But uh, if, when I do, um, it'll be at Final Nub, um, as with any, um, any, anywhere else um, online. And uh, I had a few people um, message me this week as well on, uh, you know, on being interested in bringing up Grishel Brand for their local tournament. So just give me a shout on Reddit or something if you want to ask questions. And, you know, I'd be more than happy to talk. All right. If you want an inside look at the dojo that's at Final Nub on anywhere. <laughs> Andy, any, anything, in, any closing thoughts, maybe? Um, Stitcher's Apprentice is broken. <laughs> Go buy PlayStation, Sony PlayStation 4, the system for you. All right, sounds like that's going to do it this week on the First Strike Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Special thanks to everyone here live in the chat. Big shout out to our First Strike producers, as well as our patrons. You can support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash first strike. On top of supporting us, you can become a member of the First Strike Nation and get exclusive access to content like deck lists, deck guides, and an inside look at what the guys are playing this weekend. Uh, you can check that out once again at patreon.com slash first strike. Uh, so on behalf of myself, Derek, Andy, and Jonathan, thanks for watching and see you guys next week. Thank you.